Uh, we'll be reading the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah for our scripture reading today. If you're able and willing, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one who called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not, do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Thank you. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Let's pray as we begin the service, or begin the sermon. Lord God, like Isaiah, I come to you as a man of unclean lips. Every one of us in this room are a people of unclean lips. And Lord, if we beheld your holiness, like Isaiah, we would fall to the ground in worship. Lord, if we really saw your holiness, we would see the truth of our sinful condition. And we would run to you. God, I pray this morning as we word, especially the difficult subjects that your text brings up, I pray that you would help us run to you. Help us to cease our rebellion. And as Isaiah say, here am I, Lord, send me. I pray this in your name. 
as a culture, we, we place an incredible value on independence. One of our nation's founding documents is the Declaration of Independence, where we proclaim to England that we would no longer live under tyranny, and, and, and then along with that, we have a popular holiday called Independence Day, where Americans celebrate that independence from England. We consider someone to be an adult when they are independent of their parents. They're no longer dependent on their parents for their daily needs. We have concepts like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. We often look down on people that have to live off the fortunes of others or have to live in their parents' basements. We desire to be financially independent. Kelly Clarkson, in a famous song, glorified Miss Independent, while also suggesting that Miss Independent must give up that independence when she falls in love with a man. Both these cultural views of feminism and of masculinity encourage people to be completely independent. The culture says that true humanity is to not need anyone else. True humanity is to live completely self-sufficient. This idea of the ideal human life as, as one of independence has not only pervaded our culture, but if you were to examine your own heart today and your own mind, it's also pervaded our minds. But is independence the ultimate good according to Scripture? While many of us live our lives believing that independence is the chief end of mankind, Scripture paints a very different picture. In fact, Scripture, especially in these early chapters in Genesis, clearly teaches that to be truly human is to live with dependence on the triune God through a relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is, in effect, the very teaching of our passage before us this morning. Let's read it together, starting in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And we'll read all the way through the end of chapter 3. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every living tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of knowledge was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or the tree of life, excuse me, was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the, is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the Lord God had taken from the man, uh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Continuing to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity or a struggle between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he should reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out, of the, out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We see in this passage two, two chapters that have a very contrasting picture. We'll see three major themes. For one, we'll see the providence of God. Secondly, we'll see man's search for independence from God. And then third, we'll see along with this a call for dependence on God. These actual points of the outline, these three points actually come from Abraham Kuravilla and his masterful commentary on the book of Genesis. First of all, this morning we see providence. We see this idea of providence that God provides for man's every need. That God provides for man's every need. You may ask yourself, what, what is providence? Maybe you've never heard that word as a theological word before. What, what does it mean? What, is, what does it mean that God is a God of providence? John Piper explains that we get the word providence from the word provide. Seems logical enough. The word providence briefly means that God provides for and sustains and governs the universe and takes care of those within that universe. The word itself, provide, comes from two Latin words. The one, the first word pro, which means forward or on behalf of, and then the Latin word vide, which means to see. It's interesting that sometimes we use this phrase, I'll see to that. Right? I'll see to that. To express that we will provide something. I might say that I will see to the needs of my family. When I, uh, and what, I'm, what I mean by that is, as a husband, I will provide for their needs. I am seeing their needs with the purpose of fulfilling those needs. God's providence is just that. He sees our needs with the purpose of fulfilling those needs. God's seeing always produces action. In Genesis 22, when God tested Abraham, Abraham tells Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. Literally, the Hebrew says, God will see himself a lamb. As we observed last week, after each day of creation, God saw that it was good. Creation itself is an act of God's provision. His providence for mankind. God provided what was good for mankind to live. He created everything mankind needed to live a full life, including a relationship with him by creating man in his image. We also observed last week that man was created with the special purpose of representing God to all of creation. Now here in Genesis 2 then, we kind of zoom in to this creation narrative, to what was going on in chapter 1. If you 
Remember back in chapter 1, you kind of start with this grand view of God creating the heavens and the earth. And slowly but surely, the microscope goes down. You, get a, you, you kind of zoom in further and further and closer and closer. And here we kind of get this really close-up view of the creation of man. So it's, it's basically day six expanded. This is not a separate creation event. Rather, this is an expansion, a, a focusing in on what was taking place in day six of creation. So this morning, we're going to walk through the text. We're going to walk through these two chapters. And along, excuse me, along the way, we'll pick up details that are really important to the text. There's so much going on. This could be, again, just like Genesis 1, this one could be 10 weeks worth of messages, and we still wouldn't del- delve the depths of these, two, of these two chapters. So we're going to do the best that we can uh, to hit, hit some details, some important observations, things that are going on in the text. Uh, beginning then in verse 4, uh, this phrase here, these are the generations, uh, this is actually a phrase that's used throughout Genesis to indicate that a new section is starting. Uh, here we have this new section. It didn't happen in Genesis 1, this, this idea of there, these are the generations that did not take place in Genesis 1, because it was the very beginning. But here now we have a new section with verse 4 of chapter 2 saying these are the generations. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. This is the, this, so this is opening up a new section. It's, it's giving some detail to the creation story. Verse 5 then continues forward to, to describe that there was some things that were, that were, were lacking at this point in time that, that we on this side of the narrative would not have seen. He mentions that there, are, there was no bush of the field and no small plant of the field. What in the world is he talking about? I thought he created all the vegetation already, right? Didn't he create all the trees and all the grass and all that stuff? I thought he already created that. But it says here, there was no bush and no small plant. Well, to help understand that, these two phrases here, um, that along with this aspect that God had not caused it to rain on the land, what Moses is doing is he is pointing forward to a time after uh, after the sin had taken place and after the flood. This is what the world was like before the flood, before sin entered into the world. So what is a bush? What's he talking about here? This word that he's using for bush is used other places in Scripture to describe a, uh, this is basically a, 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 like plants that would have been in the wilderness, wild plants that would have been in the wilderness, untamed, unkept plants that would be in the wilderness, kind of like maybe like weeds. We might call it weeds. The other one where it says small plant, this is indicating uh, cultivated plants. Cultivated plants. Think like corn crops, right? Crop kind of plants. That's what small plants is referring to here. And at this point in the narrative, man has not been given the task of cultivating the land yet. That happens after the fall. We'll get to that and how how that's the case here in just a minute. It also indicates that there was no rain on the land, so therefore these two types of plants would not have existed yet because they required rain. It's for, some, for, uh, for whatever reason, the text is explaining that those things required rain. The flood had not taken place yet, and therefore it had not rained. So this verse here is, is anticipating what's going to be coming in the narrative. Verse 6 then explains what was taking place. It says a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. God was providing through a means that he does not use anymore. 
He was providing a way to water the plants that were there. It was all from the Lord. It was completely provided by him. He provided a mist to come up from the ground to water those plants. Verse 7 then continues on, and it starts describing the creation of man in more detail. In chapter 1, it's interesting. In chapter 1, it says, the only details we get about the creation of mankind is that man was created in the image of God and in his likeness. Now again, after reading that, people might think, well, we are pretty special. Right? We are created in the image of God. We are, we must be, we must be half God or something, right? We must be divine. And here, Moses cuts off every hint that that might be the case. And he says, no, 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 no. Before you think you're divine, here's where you actually belong. And here's what he says, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Yes, man is created in the, um, in, in the image of God, but... Moses makes sure that mankind is fully aware of his utter creatureliness. He is not creator. He is creation. Man is created from the dust of the ground. And this will actually come into play later, as we already saw in the next chapter, that this idea of man being created from the dust will come up later in the curse as well. Then continuing on in verse 8, uh, it says the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. What's interesting here is, is this direction stuff. Why these details? What is, what is Moses doing? Why does he want to point these things out? Right? He, he created this land that he called Eden, and on the east part of this land, he created this garden within this land, within Eden. That's where he placed man, is in this garden, in this small space within the greater land. Why, why this, why east? Why would that even matter too, right? What's interesting here is at this point, east is an indication of blessing, right? Mankind is placed in the garden where all their, provi- all their things are going to be provided in the east. When we get to chapter three, where is mankind placed outside the garden? On the east. Man is placed on the east of the garden. What was once a direction of blessing becomes a direction of cursing. And what's actually interesting as you continue on up to, up to chapter 11 and beyond that, God places them outside of Eden on the east. Guess which direction man continues heading? East. Further and further away from the good land that God created. Eventually they end up in a place called Babylon. May remember the story of the Tower of Babel. It's the city of Babylon. They end up in a place called Babylon. So the Tower of Babel narrative ends up functioning as this climactic event that is a result of mankind's moving away from the good land, away from God's provision, and seeking his independence. But we'll, we'll get to that here in, in, in when we get to that section in, in, in chapter 3. Verses 9 through 14 then, continue to describe the land, the good land that they live in. He provide, essentially describes that God provided food for man. He, create, he provided beauty for man. And he created water. He provided water for mankind. All of these things are, are provided in, these, in, the, in verses 9 through 14. Um, uh, he, he, he 
provides all the, all the things that are going to be good for food. And then you have these rivers, and you have these different areas that have different kind of gemstones, things like that. Beauty and, and, and water provision and food provision are all provided by the Lord. But again, that's also, as most of Moses' statements here, this is not just ending with chapter 2. And this is, well, this is what the Garden of Eden looked like. Isn't that nice? In Exodus chapter 25 through 27, when the sanctuary is being described, a lot of the language of the sanctuary, the things that it's decorated with, the gems that are used, the, the materials that are used, the, 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 the pool that was used, right? There's water and there's gemstones and all these things. What is the sanctuary being built to represent? Eden. The place that God created as his temple. And further, Genesis, or Revelation chapter 22 describes the new heaven and new earth in the exact same way. So there's going to be these gemstones. There's going to be gold. The tree of life is going to be there. So all the imagery, the new heaven and new earth is going to reflect the Garden of Eden. What a wonderful promise. Continuing on in verses 28 through 25, we're going to focus on this area a little bit because it is such an such a important, helpful area to talk about marriage and what's, what's going on here. We'll come back to 15, 16, and 17. But for right now, let's move forward to 18 through 25 in the creation of marriage. First of all, God looks and he says, it is not good. This is the first time God recognizes something as not good. Right? All through Genesis 1, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. At the end of the creation of man, he saw that it was very good. And here we have this, this, this uh, zoomed-in version where God looks at, at, at the situation and says, there's something that's not good here. It's not good for man to be alone. So he creates this scenario that's kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting aspect of the text. He, he brings all the animals and marches them, marches them in front of Adam and says, hey, you know, you know, it's kind of like a two-year-old. All right, Adam, what's that? Elephant, right? Yes, good job, Adam. Okay, what's that one? You know, it's, it's, it's like treating him like and he, what happens. As he sees all these things, he looks at it and he says, Nothing, none of these animals are fit for me. None of these are, are a helper fit for me. So God then provides this for him. Create The creation of woman here. Ladies, listen up. This is good stuff. Right? The creation of woman is essential. What, com- what comes down to is, is an archetypal example or is a, a universal or su- supreme example of God's knowledge of what is good for mankind. Ladies, you are a great gift from God. God created you because He knew that you were good for mankind. We needed you. He describes woman as a helper fit for him. A helper, uh, this, this word helper, sometimes in our culture we look at a word like this and we say, oh, so it's just this kind of like below him kind of role. I see how it is, right? And all the feminists throw up their hands and pitch fits. It's actually not how this word is used. This word helper is actually used in scripture of God himself. In Psalm chapter 30 and verse 10, it says, oh Lord, be my helper. In Psalm 54 verse 4, it says, God is my helper. Women are given a really interesting role that God, a role that God has for, that God also fulfills. It also does not mean that women, is, women are superior or stronger. 
fact, what we'll find is that they are indeed equal with one another. Abraham Curavilla explains that the phrase suitable for him indicates complementarity rather than identity or hierarchy. In other words, woman is not less than man, but rather they are created with equal value yet distinct roles, especially in marriage. Puritan author Matthew Henry put it this way. Woman was not made out of was not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Adam then describing her says she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is not a genetic connection. He's not saying she shares DNA with me. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is is he is making an oath of abiding loyalty to her. She is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Marriage is a covenant relationship, a mutual commitment of partners who oblige themselves to each other for every circumstance of life. It's also interesting how Scripture throughout the rest of the Bible uses these passages here, this description of the creation of man and woman. Why, why did God create marriage in the first place? What was the purpose of it? We could say that the purpose was to fulfill uh, the blessing that he told them, to be fruitful and multiply. That is definitely one aspect of marriage. But uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 13, uh, 22 through 33, when he describes marriage, he picks up on this phrase here. He picks up on this marriage um, this, 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 uh, this creation aspect and quotes verse 24 where it says therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and he ends with a curious statement he says this is a mystery and I say it's about Christ and the church so what Paul tells us is the creation of marriage was not merely a way for mankind to fill and multiply the earth but marriage was created to be a shadow a picture of what Christ's relationship would be to his people. As Paul described, it is a relationship where the wife submits herself to the husband and the husband sacrifices himself for the good of the wife. It looks just like the gospel where we, God's people, submit to ourse- ourselves to Christ and Christ sacrifices himself for us. Marriage is made, created to depict the relationship of Christ to his people. And as a brief aside, this is why divorce and remarriage is described so negatively in Scripture by mostly Jesus himself. In Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16, God is described as the God of Israel who hates divorce. Matthew chapter 5 verse 32 uh, Jesus, just talking about uh, divorce. Let me turn there real quick so I can read this for you. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Further, Jesus says again in Matthew chapter 19 in another instance of teaching, he says this about divorce and remarriage. He says, um, verses 3 through 9. The Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, again pointing back to Genesis 2, 
made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now let me be clear. This does not mean that if you've been divorced or you've remarried, that you're going to hell. It's not what Jesus is saying here. But it does reveal just how distorted our world is as a result of sin. Men beat their wives, and for safety, she must get out of that marriage. Sometimes. Women cheat on their husbands, and so can irreparably break that trust. Thus, more than anything, these ideas about, that Jesus gives about marriage and divorce and how it relates to Genesis chapter 2, more than anything, these truths should drive us to our knees and help us to remember that God alone knows what is good for us. God alone knows what is good for us. Coming back to Genesis then, let's go back up to verses 15 through 17. Here in verses 15 through 17, God gives purpose and a command in the garden. In, in verse 15, it says, Then God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God said to the man, saying, or uh, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Man is given a task. He is put in the garden to work it and to keep it. This phrase is also really interesting in the Hebrew. In fact, the, this phrase, every commentator that I looked at this week, Every one of them emphasized that this phrase is better translated as he put them in the garden to worship and obey. Man is placed in the garden to worship and obey God. This should not be surprising. The text has already shown us that the land is created as a temple, as a temple for God. That Eden points forward to the sanctuary and to the new heavens and new earth. In Revelation 22, it describes that his servants will worship him in the new heaven and new earth. This renewed creation then is a return to Eden, where man's primary task is to worship and obey God. And in the new heaven and new earth, that's just what we'll be doing. So Genesis 2 is not merely history, but it gives a picture of what is in store for the future of those who are in relationship with the triune God. Then God gives a command. There's one tree you can't eat about. Why does God give them that command? Because he knows what's best. Because God knows what's best for humanity. He has provided what is good for them. He has told them what is good. He has done for them what is good. And he alone knows what is good. So when he gives this command, it is the obligation of humans to obey. Secondly, we see then, coming into chapter 3, independence. I know we're short on time, but we're going we're gonna to going to drive through this as quickly, drive through this quickly, so bear with me. Independence. Man seeks independence from God. In contrast to this beautiful picture of God's providence in chapter 2, 
chapters 1 and 2. We see this terrible tragedy that takes place in chapter 3. We already have seen last week that the fall into sin is depicted as a foolish search for wisdom apart from God's revelation. The way Moses describes it, it's not as some heinous act necessarily, but it's more is described as a foolish search for wisdom apart from God. As we jump into this section, we look back again at verse 25, and it says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's interesting, this word naked here is, is different than the word naked used later. This particular word naked is more a reference to their innocence, which is also contrasted with the next verse where it says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The word crafty here is often used of wisdom in Scripture. So man was innocent, the serpent seemed wise. He appeared to be wise. This, again, this sin described here is the archetypal sin. It is the sin pattern that we can see in every single one of our choices, our sinful choices. It begins with questioning God's command. The serpent says, did God really say that you'll surely, that you'll, that you shouldn't eat of that? Did God really say that you'll die? And how does Eve respond? Oh, well, God said we shouldn't, we shouldn't eat that tree or touch it. Did God say not to touch it? That wasn't in the command. Step two, she took God's command and twisted it. Changed it to meet her own ends. In this particular case, made it legalistic. Don't eat it or touch it. Right? She, she twisted what God had said, added to what God had said. And then the, the, serp, the snake outright rejects the command of God. He says, God, geez, Eve, you're not really going to die. It's not really going to happen. You won't really die. God was just kidding. And essentially what he does there, he's not just saying that God was lying. He is saying God doesn't really know what's good for you. He created you. He made all this stuff that was good for you. He provided for you. He doesn't really know what's good for you. You know who knows what's good for you? You do, Eve. You know what's good for you. You know what's best. And this pattern is the exact pattern we see in our own sin. Every one of our sins, at the end of the day, boils down to pride. I know better than God does. Verse 6 then tells us Eve saw that it was God saw every day of creation and saw that it was good. He saw the creation of mankind was good and it was very good. He created Eve and said that was good. It was not good for man to be alone. Eve, I'm going to even create you and you're good, a good creation. And then Eve says, you know what, God, that one thing you told me not to do, that was good. Eve saw that it was good. Mankind tries to usurp God's role in knowing what is good, seeking independence from God and His command, and it leads to destruction every single time. All of our sin is seeking independence from God. It is pride. Why do we lie? Why do we lie to people? Because we think it will free us from consequences, but really it becomes shackles to us. Not only are we tied to that lie, but lying breaks God's command. It is sin. 
Why do we lust or cheat on our spouse? Because we think it will bring us happiness, but instead it enslaves us. Spiritually, we are a slave to our lust and trying to hide our private life, but ultimately it is disobedience to the command of God. It is sin. Why do we disobey our parents? Because we think that our disobedience will get us what we want. A couple more minutes of being awake, not having to do something, a couple more minutes of playing a game, whatever the case may be. But disobeying our parents breaks God's commands. Disobedience cannot bring the happiness you think it will bring you. Why do we skip out on going to church? Because we think that we have something better to do. We may even think that we're okay because we're giving that time to our family. I'm visiting my kids or I'm going to do this or, or you know what, I'm doing that instead. See, that, that, that makes it okay, right? But ultimately, we teach our family that Jesus is not important. When we prioritize them over our relationship with God's people, we teach our family that Jesus is unimportant to us. Our choice teaches our children that God and his word are not important to us. So why would they believe it's important to them? But more importantly, God has commanded us to be involved in a local church for the mutual building up of one another. To reject that is to reject God's command. It is sin. And finally, why do we disobey the Great Commission? When God says, take the gospel to the nations, why do we say, I don't have to do that? Right? And we're so self-deceived that we say, you know what? I, I don't know enough to be able to do that. I'm not spiritual enough to be able to do that. We try to make like spiritual excuses, right? How deluded can we possibly be? I don't need to obey God because I'm not spiritual enough. Or God hasn't called me to do that. Nonsense. Trying to mask our sin with spiritualism is idolatry. It is disobedience. As we'll see, each of these sins by themselves deserve death. Even lying deserves death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Our sin, our claim of independence from God is, according to Ephesians 2, an act of war on the throne of God. Every one of us, when we are born, are born into this same condition which Adam and Eve brought into the world. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are not born innocent. We are not born with a blank slate. We are born stained and broken in need of a Savior. God is merciful to those who are unable to repent and believe. But rest assured that before a holy God, we all stand guilty, just as Isaiah did before the throne of God. Verse 7 uses a different word for naked. Now when they've sinned, they are naked and they are ashamed. This type of nakedness is one that brings shame. They are open. All of their sin is exposed. And now they are ashamed. Both man and woman were created in the image of God. Woman was created to be a helper fit for him, but now they realize just how different they really are. How different they really are from God and how different they are from each other. And they seek to cover up that shame by tying a couple leaves together. Like that's going to fix it. 
verse 8 begins to look at the ramifications of man's declaration of independence from him. First of all, they foolishly try to hide from God. Right? They said, God, we don't need you. We're independent from you. And the first thing they do is, God can't see me. Don't look. I didn't do it. First thing they do is hide from a holy God. Then God becomes to them. He finally speaks to them. and has a dialogue with them. God begins with Adam. Why Adam? Eve was the one that ate, right? Why did he start with Adam? Adam bears the responsibility. The woman was deceived by the serpent. Adam was not. Adam saw the situation and chose not to protect his wife and willingly joined her in her rebellion. Therefore, he bears first blame. God says, what'd you do? Well, that woman that you gave me, she gave to me and I ate. Notice what he does there. Not only does he blame Eve, he essentially blames God. He says, you gave her to me, you said she was good, and look what she did. How dare you give me that woman, God? A couple of men have probably prayed that before, right? Just kidding. We love our wives, right? Come on now. That woman that you gave me, you said she was good. You provided her for me. She messed it all up. Then he goes to Eve. Well, what happened? Well, that serpent did it. That serpent's the one. It's blame shifting, blame shifting, blame shifting all across here. And then God comes to cursing. He meets out judgment. He first starts with a serpent. He says that you're going to crawl on the ground and eat dust. Now, this does not mean that the serpent probably had arms and legs. What most likely is going on here is now the serpent will be completely humbled and will have to, in fact, the emphasis is on the fact that he will eat dust, Right? Um, there's a, a, an utter humiliation to the serpent here. He is uh, removed from whatever status he may have had and is humiliated completely. And again, in the fullness of time in Revelation, the book of Revelation, we re- it revealed that, that the serpent is indeed Satan himself. Verse 16. In verse 16, the, uh, the, curse, is, the curse is given to woman. What is her punishment for her sin? It says, you're going to bear pain in childbearing. You're going to have pain in childbearing. Now think about this. What was supposed to be a blessing, be fruitful and multiply, has now become a part of the curse. You're going to bear pain when you do that. It's going to be a painful reminder every single time. Charity recently had a baby. She was not able to get an epidural. The baby came way too fast. She experienced the full measure of pain in childbearing. Even though it only took about two minutes, she was very lucky. That baby came real fast. Um, But she got to experience the full pain of childbearing. And as we talked about that, we thought about how we got to experience the full curse of what our sin does to God, of what our sin looks like to God, and what our sin deserves to God. Then verses 17 through 19 the curse is given to Adam. It's told, he is told now that he will have to work the land and he would have to, and this uh, would produce a curse of thorns and weeds. Right? Now Adam, instead of, instead of worshiping and obeying God in the garden, now he's going to have to till the ground and work. And anyone who's worked in farming knows that is not easy work. Uh, this last week I had the opportunity, I had to, I had to cut down a, uh, a couple of bushes from the superintendent's house and one of them was a very unwi- unwieldy uh, poorly managed rose bush thorns were probably about a half inch long 
Every single one of those thorns went through my, went through my gloves, went through my clothes, everything. It was very painful. I've got scratches all over my body from that thorn bush. Don't tell me this curse ain't real, <laughs> right? This is a very real curse. In fact, that later on, it was about a half hour or so later, looked down and I had a thorn sticking out of my shin. It was like half an inch sticking out of my shin. I'm like, what is that? I was wondering why my shin was itching, but I didn't realize that was sticking out. The curse is real. The ground was cursed because of Adam's sin. And then verse 20, we see that Eve is finally named. Up to this point, she's just been called the woman. The woman, the woman. Here he says the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Continuing forward then in, in verse 21, God continues to show blessing. Look at this. God, God makes for them garments of skin and clothes them. God gives them garments of skin. This, this actually, again, points forward to the garments that the priests were given to wear in the sanctuary to cover their nakedness before the Lord. Lest they incur guilt and die, which is the way Exodus 28, 48 to 42 describes. So they will wear this skin of this garment of skin, lest they incur guilt and die. Lest their nakedness be revealed on the, on the altar, and they incur guilt and die. What God does here is he reaffirms Adam and Eve's role as priests. They are still made in the image of God. They are still made to represent God. But now they have guilt that needs to be covered. God here is already beginning to mend his broken world by saying, I'm going to cover up that sin. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to continue to take care of you. Lest you incur guilt and die. Lest Adam and Eve can incur guilt and die. I'll, I'll take care of you. Verses 22 through 24 continues on with this, uh, with this idea. God ends up sending them out of the garden in these verses. God further knows what is best for man. Man cannot and should not have eternal life independently from God. What God says is, look, now he knows good and evil. Now he's become independent. He's like us now. That thing that he searched for, he searched to be like God. He found it. He made it. He did it. At least in the fact of knowledge of good and evil, not in complete divinity. But now, to protect him, we need to get him away from the tree of life. Because to live eternally, independently from God would be a far worse punishment for Adam and Eve. He drives them east of the garden. While being in the garden in the eastern part of Eden was a blessing, now part of the curse is to be driven east of the garden, outside of Eden. This movement eastward, as we already talked about, is a sign of, uh, of judgment. It continues climaxing with uh, mankind's rebellion at the Tower of Babel, or in Babylon. Abraham is called from Ur of the Chaldees, which is a city that would have been near Babylon in that area, and was called to come back west toward the good land. Much later, when Israel continues in rebellion against God, he drives them from the good land to be, to be captives again in Babylon. And after seven year, 70 years, restores them again to the good land. You see, this movement, movement east away from the good land is bad. It's living apart from, God's, from dependence on God. Coming back is how God restores and brings salvation. Man was created like God, made in his image. Man tried to be like God by having his wisdom. While he, in one sense, achieved his goal, he lost his relationship with God. Satisfaction does not come in being 
like God, as many of us think, but rather with being with God. So Genesis 3 is all about here. Mankind tried to be like God, but that didn't bring happiness. That didn't bring satisfaction. What was really bringing happiness and satisfaction was being with God. And the same is still true of us today. Last year, and real briefly, real quickly, man seeks his independence, and we are then called from the text. The text calls forward to us and tells us that we must live dependent on God. We ask the question, this is, this is a pretty dire circumstance in chapter 3. Is there any hope? Is there hope? Right? Is there any hope? An interesting statement in verse 15. God says, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As God is bringing judgment for the first sin, God makes a promise which sets the trajectory of the rest of the Old Testament, climaxing in the New Testament. God promises to send the seed of a woman to crush the serpent's head. The book of Revelation clarifies that the serpent is indeed Satan. The rest of the Old Testament gives an answer to the question, who is the seed of the woman? Later in Genesis, God gives this same promise to Abraham, clarifying that the family from which the seed, clarifying the family from which the seed will arrive. The promise is also made to Isaac and to Jacob and to David. Paul picks up on this language of this promise from God, noting that the word offspring is singular. One person. In Galatians, Paul emphasizes that the nation of Israel is not the promised object of this glorious hope, but rather one particular person. He further states in Romans 5.17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The triune God created mankind to have a dependent relationship with him, calling him to worship and obey him because he knows what is best for mankind. When man sinned, that relationship was broken, but God had a plan to restore that relationship. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would add to his divinity humanity. And in perfect obedience to the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would suffer and die for the sin of mankind. You see, the wages of sin is death. And Christ died that death for you and for me so that we could restore that dependent relationship with him. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. We can only find true life through depending on the work of Christ. That's it. I will never be good enough to be accepted by God. You will never be good enough. Our world says, be independent. You can do it if you put your mind to it. You're all that you need. You know what's best for you. But God says, depend on me and my word because I know what's best for you. I will take care of you. I will save you. God calls us to give up our independence in order to be saved. Once you are a Christian, the Christian life is one of continually giving up your independence and relying on, the, on and trusting the commands of God as written in his scripture. A Christian cannot look at the commands of God and say, he didn't really mean that. Right? We can't come to scripture and say, well, God didn't really mean that. Or, or well, that, that command doesn't apply to me. No, the Christian comes to the Bible and says, God, change my heart to worship and obey you. Change my mind to worship and obey you. Change my actions to worship and obey you. 
True life and true happiness is not found in independence, but in radical dependence on the triune God of the Bible. As we move to our time of invitation, two areas of invitation. One is salvation. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you've never depended on Him for your salvation, will you make that choice today? Come to me. I would love to talk with you how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus. And second, if you're a Christian and you're trying still, you are trying to live independently from God, I would encourage you, lay down your arms. Run to Him and depend on Him. He's waiting for you. Let's pray and sing. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I know we ran over in time. But God, there's so much in that passage. We didn't want to miss any of it. Pray that you would help us to live dependently on you.